I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The FT. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today is the FT's Chief Regulation Correspondent, Brooke Masters, and Elaine Moore, the Deputy Money Editor. In this week's podcast, we'll look at interest-only mortgages after the Nationwide Building Society announced it will stop offering interest-only mortgages to new borrowers. We'll also look back at the FT's new Wall Street series, particularly the interview with James Gorman, head of Morgan Stanley. And finally, we'll discuss Erke Lickinen's recommendations on shaking up your European banking. First, though, interest-only mortgages. Elaine, you've been taking a look at this story about nationwide withdrawing new customers' access to interest-only mortgages. Now, interest-only mortgages, they were a kind of boom-time phenomenon, really, allowing a lot of people to borrow, I guess, more than they might otherwise have been able to afford if they'd had to pay back principal amounts as well as interest. What do you think is happening now? Why are they being withdrawn? Well, they are. It's not hard to see why interest-only mortgages were popular. They allowed you to borrow much more than you could possibly afford, and the amounts that you repaid each month were much lower than they would be if you had to repay some of the capital on your property. What people hoped, what the home buyers hoped, was that house prices would just keep on going up and up and up and up. And so by the time you came to sell or remortgage, the capital value of your home had gone up by so much. It didn't matter if you'd only paid off the interest. You could then remortgage on and find yourself a bigger and better home. And obviously, as we all know, 2007, 2008, that dream came to an end. 2007, one in three new mortgages were interest only. So you can see that it was a massive product. And now the banks are scrambling and they're trying to get off this bandwagon and they're trying to make sure that borrowers are only taking out loans that they can afford to repay. There's this worry that there's about a million mortgages that are interest only that will come to an end between now and 2020 and those people have no plan to repay the capital value of their property. Is 2020 the real peak of it? Because I guess these would typically be, what, 20-year mortgages? 20 or 25-year mortgages, yeah. yeah. So they're long-term mortgages. And the other worry is that it's it's people who are slightly older, so it's a lot of people in their 50s who may be coming to the end of an interest-only mortgage plan and have absolutely no way to repay the price of their home. And also some of the information that's been coming out recently shows that where the property market has been sort of flatlining for quite a while, it now is deteriorating a little bit. So we had the nationwide property um, index that came out showing that September house price is 1.2% lower than they were that time last year. So that's even more bad news for people on interest-only mortgages who then become kind of prisoners. They're trapped. They can't buy a new home and they can't remortgage in their existing home. So Nationwide has looked at its own data on house prices and realised maybe they should withdraw this product. Could be. They are saying that this is a niche product. So they say that only about 3% of new loans are interest-only. So that's their kind of reason that they're giving. But there is definitely, there's another huge side to the story and, and that is the fact that part of the reason it's a niche product is because lenders just aren't offering the product anymore. They want people to have very large deposits or very large amounts of capital in order to get hold of these loans in the first place because of the risk that they'll get to the end of them, have no way of repaying the capital and possibly properties might need to be repossessed and that's the last thing that banks want to have to do. 
Now, there's been some suggestion that this could be the next mis-selling scandal in Britain after the infamous PPI mis-selling scandal around payment protection insurance. Do you think that's likely to uh, be uh, the case? It's really hard to say. So the FSA hasn't banned interest-only mortgages, but it has made these very, um, very clear indications that it wants banks to only lend money that is responsible, that it knows that borrowers can repay at some time. So we don't know whether it will be the next scandal. We We do know that the numbers are very big and they're very scary and they're making government and they're making regulators very nervous. Brooke, what do you think? Well, the one if you think about the subprime mortgage scandal in the US, a number of those were interest-only mortgages. There, at least, some of the settlements have found that people were not properly informed that what they were doing was not repaying their mortgage because, of course, everybody assumes you gradually pay off your house. Yeah, it does feel a bit like an echo of the endowment mortgage scandal in the UK going back, whatever, 15 more years. I remember myself painfully being sold an endowment mortgage when clearly didn't have any idea what I was buying. was told it was only an upside thing, but does feel to me, at least, like this could well be something that's brewing for the banks. And maybe that's another reason why people might be exiting faster. They <laughs> Are were... nationwide on their own, by the way? Are, are they the only one to pull out? Co-op was already pulled out. So that was in May. Co-op right. pulled out. And some of the other banks have made the criteria for interest-only mortgages much stricter. So Santander, for example, that will require you to have a very large deposit. There's also a kind of interesting um, angle that uh, some of the private banks are using. And it's something called a bullet repayment loan. So they'll offer you an interest-only uh, loan. We you can pay interest only, just pay off the interest for 11 months of the year. In the last month of the year, you'll have to repay some of the capital. So it's sort of in a lump sum. Ah, right. To tally with your bonus payment, presumably. Absolutely. Very good. Well, Elaine, thanks very much for joining us to talk about that. We should move on to the second topic for today. Last week, we had a big series on the future of Wall Street. And the highlight, I think, of that week which was largely written by our US colleagues, was an interview with the head of Morgan Stanley, James Gorman. Brooke, you weren't involved in actually doing the interview, but you've you know followed exactly what was said as closely as I have, I know. And one of the most interesting things, I think, that came out of that was his comments on the future of pay on Wall Street. He was basically saying that pay had to come down further, which I suppose is not unique to him, but it's interesting that he should say it and in such a forceful way. Well, it's particularly interesting because, of course, Morgan Stanley is really a pure investment bank. So it relatively has more people who are higher paid than banks that have large retail staff. So to the extent that you decide you're going to trim bonuses and, and really cut pay, it will show very quickly at Morgan Stanley, perhaps more quickly than other places. Morgan Stanley is also a bank that has lost market cap rather significantly. It needs investors to believe in it. So to come out and say, we recognize you investors that we've been paying our staff too much and more of that money needs to go somewhere else, i.e. back to you, the investors, it, it's a pitch. It's basically, you know, buy my bank um, because we are going to do what you want us to do. That kind of plays into a theme that has been running across a few banks lately. And certainly it's been a theme that investors have been pushing, which is, you know, how do you divvy up the spoils between shareholders and, and staff? And in that sense, it's the, it's the latest to get onto that bandwagon. Do you think we're going to see, therefore, a tangible shift in that split, really, that we're going to get, I don't know, a third of the spoils go to shareholders, a third of the spoils go to bankers in future? I think that the traditional 50% ratio is almost certainly gone because there's a lot less money to go around and somebody's going to have to take the hit. Yeah. So in the old days, bankers would have basically got half have of the money, money that they brought in. Exactly. Yeah. And that that's clearly gone. Whether it goes a third, one third shareholders, one third bank employees and one third building up capital, which is the other thing the which banks the have thing, to be absolutely. doing. That, that seems sort of logical, at least in the short term. Yeah. Long term, maybe it'll stay at a third for the bankers and more of it will go back to the shareholders. Because, of course, right now, the returns on equity are much lower because banks are much less leveraged and becoming even less leveraged. Mm. So the total profits that could ordinarily be out there have come down. 
There's an almost seamless link into our third item for the day, which is the Likkonen review of the structure of European banking. Now, although we will go on to talk about the, the main thrust, really, of the changes that were proposed around ring fencing of trading assets, another very important recommendation that came through this review was how bankers should be paid and the use of potentially bail-inable debt in bonuses. What do you think of that, Brooke? I think it's be really popular because, in fact, I was having coffee on Friday with a banker who said, what I would give not to have equity risk. I mean, if you pay in bail-inable debt, you get paid something, it stays what it is unless the bank is about to go bust, at which point you end up with equity or a haircut. But from a sort of stable, forward-looking point of view, you pay the bankers what they get, you know, what they get, and then they have an interest in keeping the bank from going bust because it's the one time they really lose big. So, from a stability point of view, you can see obviously why policymakers would like it. From mm-hmm. an employee point of view, it could be nice as well. What about from an individual bank point of view? Presumably, the downside there is it's more expensive because they're paying guaranteed instrument, but presumably have a pretty high coupon compared with you know at the moment not having to pay any dividends on equities. I think definitely it, it would be more expensive although it's cheaper than cash. And you don't dilute your existing shareholders unless, of course, you get the bank in trouble and it has to convert. It has some attractions for the banks as well. The other point we should move on to talk about is the substantial structural proposal that came out of Lickin and that we, we kind of knew was coming, but is nonetheless pretty interesting. This idea of having to ring fence trading assets. It's a kind of version that links the Volcker rule in the in the States, which has kind of restricts trading assets on banks' own books when it's proprietary risk. And mixing that with the Vickers proposal in the UK from last year where retail banking would be ring fenced. Ring fencing trading assets is another way of kind of trying to de-risk bank structures. Will it work, do you think? It's hard to know because exactly what's a trading asset is always the question, just as in Volcker, what's prop trading? Many of these things, it depends what ends up on what side of the ring fence. But at least in theory, to have an entity where the more risky, dangerous activities, which trading inherently is, have their own capital requirements, that is separate from the retail bank that cannot go down because it will bring the whole economy with it. Seems like a very sensible idea. If nothing else, it will make them easier to break up in the case of a disaster. Which is the crucial thing, right? It needs to go hand in hand with this development of a global resolution regime whereby you have living wills, so-called, which would help you to wind down something. If you have then separate, different subsidiaries that you can close down when necessary, then it makes or life easier. Or sell. Or sell. The other thing is you could sell the trading, the dreadful trading book at you know 10 cents on the dollar and get rid of it while saving the re- retail bank and keeping it alive. Well, I think while bankers might complain about this with some justification that it's yet another burden on top of all the other different changes at a regulatory level, I think if, if it does come hand in hand with a global shift in that direction, then I'm sure policymakers at least will be heartened that it's making the world a safer place. We should end there for this week. We have had a very interesting time talking about about the extremities of the banking sphere, so from pure retail banking through to the regulatory architecture at a global level. I need just to thank Brooke and Elaine for their contributions and to thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Nalini Sivathasan. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.